Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, July 29th. We begin with news that City Council has approved five new communities for Calgary. We discuss the move and explore the impact the decision will have on urban sprawl in the city with Ward 3 Councillor Jasmine Mian. Then we head stateside for an update on news making headlines south of the border. We catch up with Jennifer Johnson, Global News Washington correspondent, for a look at President Joe Biden's plummeting approval ratings and an update on rising cases of COVID-19. It's a hot topic right now in the U.S., but what do Canadians think about the current discussion surrounding access to abortion? We hear the results of a new poll on the topic from Sanyam Seti, Vice President, Public Affairs with Ipsos Public Polling. And finally, the Calgary Stampeders are set to take to the field at McMahon Stadium this weekend for the first time in more than a month. We get a Stamps-Bombers game preview from a man who knows more than a little bit about the game, Calgary Stampeders President and GM John Huffnagel. Five new communities have been approved by City Council and will be built on the outskirts of the city. Why are they needed? Why are we not building up instead of out? Joining us to talk about it is Jasmine Meehan, Ward 3 City Councillor. Good morning to you, Councillor. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Happy to be here. Appreciate it. So, you know, thoughts of Council. It was approved. I know there were some that were against it, but overall, why do you think we need these new communities as we spread more uh, through the city of Calgary instead of going up? Well, it's a great question, and I think the best way to explain it is over the next four years, we expect about the population of Lethbridge to move to Calgary, and that is a really good thing for the economy. It's a good thing for Calgary's recovery and growing cities or thriving cities, but we have to find places for people to live, and housing supply in Canada is always a bit of a challenge. Um, that kind of growth can't be absorbed in the inner city. So it's a balance. We, we hope that some of those people move to the inner city. We do a lot of inner city redevelopment right now, but there's also some growth on the outskirts of, of the city as well. Well, you know, to that point, uh, Councillor, the downtown office building conversion, something we've heard so much about, it seems like, over the past couple of years. Where are we with that project to kind of ease the burden and, and give the opportunity for uh, singles and families to live in the downtown core? Yeah, it's going well. Um, there's some really good progress on the downtown strategy and uh, converting some of our, our buildings over. Um, it's going to be a long 10-year process or more. Um, and uh, so I think that that's coming. This, the challenge with downtown is it's still not a place for, for everyone to live. If you have a, a big family, um, we're not always having the right type of uh, of stock that's there. And, uh, and so that's why, you know, we want people to have housing choice as well. Um, and uh, the next generation to be able to afford homes as well. So that's why it's a balance of, of uh, growth on the perimeter and, and growth on in the inner city. What is it about the city of Calgary? You see high rises in every city and, and really for us outside of the city of Calgary, there's only a handful of them. Why do we not build up? Well, we, we certainly are, are trying. Um, the problem, I think, is, is that inner city redevelopment is much slower. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's always very controversial. If you ever come to council one day, you'll see we have a lot of land use redesignations in the inner city. And, and they're hard fought and hard won, I'll be honest, because people are kind of happy with the way that their community is and, and don't always want their community to change. And so um, we are certainly attempting to do both. But I'll be honest, it's much, it's much quicker and easier in some respects um, to, to grow in places where people don't already live because there's a little bit less opposition you know i'm wondering if you can help us with this counselor because i'm not sure if these are conversations had at city hall but as we add new communities as we we grow out 
the problem continues with the downtown core as far as getting people down there, the vibrancy of our downtown core. Is this in consideration when you talk about uh, growing and moving outside the city with these new communities that we won't have people in our downtown core for restaurants and, and through evenings and weekends? Well, I, I still think we will have people in our downtown core. I mean, I think the the part of this conversation that, that gets left out is, is all the work that we we are doing in the inner city to ensure that we address that. Um, and I think the thing for, for my ward, certainly, is that a lot of the folks who live in, in these suburban communities, you know, they're waiting on retail amenity. They're often traveling to Balzac or to Cross Iron Mills to, to do their shopping outside of our, outside of our jurisdiction. Um, or they're moving to Airdrie or, or Cochrane and then driving in, which is, you know, harder on the, on the, on the climate. It's, it's not as ideal either. So, you know, there's no perfect solution. Um, but I do think the council is striking a balance here. Five new communities is, is way less than we've seen in the past, like 14 new communities in 2018. Um, so I think that we are certainly um, striking a good balance. Councillor Mean, kind of on that note, we just got a text in uh, somebody saying, you know, in regards to the five new communities, I'm not sure I quite understand the way of thinking. City spending 80 some billion dollars to go green. They want us to use electric cars and all the other things. But then we're getting rid of more green space and more natural habitat and building and putting down more concrete and more asphalt. What's the thinking behind all this? Can, can you kind of, ex- is there a way sure. to even explain that? Yeah, yeah, there is. Okay, so that's a really good question. First of all, I do need to clarify the city's not spending $87 billion on climate change. We have a climate strategy, um, and it's about trying to get us to build to net zero standard by starting in around 2025. Um, and so we w- we're certainly working towards that. Um, and, uh, you know, with the climate strategy, like part of the climate strategy isn't that you just stop building. Um, we can't do that. Our economy has to keep going. And I think from the pandemic, we've learned when you try and stop the economy, there's lots of trickle on effects. Um, and so that, that's something that will be addressed as we as we move forward in the building process. Um, but it's not something that all of a sudden we can just say, hey, you know what, we're going to stop building. Um, we're going to because what that will ultimately mean is that housing prices will start to go up, 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 like you see in a lot of other cities in Canada. Uh, thanks so much for your time and the conversation, Jasmine. We appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Have a great long weekend. You, too. you as well. That is War 3 Councillor Jasmine Mian. Had a, a text a second ago, by the way, Sue, and you you asked the councillor this. We talked about it. Why does it have to be just the inner city that has to grow up, mm-hmm. like literally growing up vertically? And no, we, we could have apartment complexes in other areas. And you do see that more and more. I know that years ago, the one was London by Heritage Drive and uh, McLeod Trail, right by the C train. I'm not right. sure how, the, how if all those units are filled or how vibrant it is, but the whole point is building up, building where city transit is close. So you're, you know, killing two birds with one stone. You're giving enough space for people, but also access to... to Isn't it funny, transit. though? You can actually point out the places in the city where we have high-rises outside of the core. Oh, of course. Because it is that few and it's far sparse. between. Yeah, Interesting absolutely. concept. President Biden's approval rating, the lowest it's been since he took office, with only 36% of Americans approving of the way he's leading that nation. With details on that and all the news headlines from south of the border, we're joined this morning by Jennifer Johnson, Global News Washington correspondent. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Sue. Thanks for having me. Nice to chat with you. What is behind President Biden's low popularity at this point? Well, you know, there's always the expression in America, it's the economy stupid, and and that's what's going on here. I mean, inflation is at its highest level in 40 years. We're staring down the barrel of a recession, and... Uh, you know, people are just paying so much for everything from what they're 
you know, buying at the grocery store to the gas pump to furniture, cars, um, products are difficult to come by. And when you can get them, they're much more expensive than they used to be. Interest rates are up. So housing sales are starting to stall. So it's just really the economy that is hurting the president. There's also a great concern about his age, and the polling numbers show that when Americans are asked about his age and whether or not he should run again for president, the answer is uh, a resounding no. The problem with the recent polls is that when they poll Democratic voters uh, who you'd like to see possibly replace President Biden, Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton are the top two names, but their numbers are really low. Only 21% in the, in the most recent poll approve of Kamala Harris becoming the next president and 19% for Hillary Clinton. So, you know, if, if I had a magic ball, I would say that the, the lane is wide open for a Republican administration coming in mm-hmm. in the next election. Back to the low numbers when it comes to President Biden. How, how does President Biden's polling numbers compare to his predecessor? Well, President Trump's were um, at his lowest point, not far from that, in the high 30s, low 40s, uh, people who approved the job he was doing. So not that far away from President Trump. The problem is that every month that President Biden is in office, they get worse. And um, America has not really seen polling numbers this low. I mean, it depends on what poll you believe, but some polls say that this is the lowest of any president in history. Wow. And so it, it, it doesn't bode well for his future. I, even if the economy turns around, you've got the midterm elections coming up. And, you know, there's, a, there's concern the Democrats are really going to get hurt in the midterm elections. But again, you know, Americans, when they hurt in the wallet, they take it out in the, in the voting booth. When you say the, you know, the lane is kind of open for Republicans to take over, does that mean Republicans fronted by Donald Trump or is there much appetite for that? Is that growing? Is that getting less? What do you think? You know, I get a sense talking to some friends and pundits that are staunch Republicans that that the party is growing weary of Donald Trump. He certainly still has a base out there that's very supportive, but... You know, it just seems like, once again, with Donald Trump, it's a daily controversy, whether or not it's the what's coming out in the January 6th commission or the interview he did with the uh, live golf tour playing at his Bedminster golf, uh, golf course, saying that, you know, he has to respond to the uh, victims, uh, families of 9-11 victims. And, you know, he said, we still haven't gotten to the bottom of what happened on 9-11. With, you know, every hijacker was from Saudi Arabia. And the families are expressing real concerns about this um, organization. And so for him to say that, just, you know, once again, you're raising eyebrows. Like, what do you, you know, kind of like, what are you talking about? We certainly have gotten to the bottom of 9-11. And, and, you know, you're the former president of the United States. You should know that. So I think that people have, a lot of people have grown weary. And so then conversation goes to, you know, who who could be waiting in the wings or who's next. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida. I mean, he is very conservative, so he appeals to the base of Donald Trump, but um, has also had a lot of success in his state. If you're a conservative, you view it as success, and, and he is popular in Florida. Switching gears, uh, let's focus on COVID and COVID cases on the rise here in Canada. Uh, what are you seeing down south? 
Uh, same story. Uh, the last time I looked, it was 39 states' COVID cases are rising. I think that's up to 44 um, when I checked real briefly this morning. Um, and it's the BA5 variant that's spreading so quickly. It doesn't appear to be great protection from the vaccines or immunity if you had COVID before. Now, Pfizer um, and Moderna had just told the Biden administration they believe that you can come out with a booster in September that would better protect from this latest variant. Um, the Biden administration is saying it's going to try to roll that out sometime in September. But the cases are rising, hospitalizations are rising, deaths are rising. We're getting about 134,000 cases a day. And there's still about 400 to 450 Americans who are dying from COVID mm-hmm. every day. And you know, it just, it, it, you know, we're in this country where a number of people did decided not to get any vaccine. And so you've got this whole group of this whole segment of the population unvaccinated and people aren't careful. I mean, people do not wear masks in, in most places and they're not careful. Um, and there's this whole question of whether or not people know they have COVID because either they're not testing or they're using the at-home tests. And the at-home tests are coming up negative when mm-hmm. when a lot of people, when they go to get the PCR, they come up positive. So you know, there's a lot of people running around who actually have it and don't know it. I want to touch on WNBA star Brittany Griner in a sec, but I want to also, before we leave COVID completely, kind of flip over to monkeypox. Because I heard, is there a state of emergency in San Francisco or what's happening there? Yeah, there, there are great concerns in San Francisco and also New York City, which is the epicenter of the monkeypox outbreak. And uh, again, the problem is there are only a certain amount of uh, vaccines and testing sites and more people that need them. And so, um, yeah, mon- monkeypox is becoming a huge concern now for the Centers for Disease Control, and it is spreading uh, rapidly in this country. So. Uh, that's one of the things where we're kind of chasing after the virus. There's been a lot of criticism that we did not get ahead of this. And so even the, the centers that are opening for testing and vaccines, you know, they're running out uh, with people still outside in line. So, yes, San Francisco and New York, really hard hit. All right, let's, uh, we got about 30 seconds, but can you give us an update on WNBA star Brittany Griner and, of course, uh, the American citizen Paul Whalen as far as getting them back from Russia? What are you, what are you hearing? Well, there is a deal on the table from the Biden administration to exchange both Greiner and Whalen for uh, this guy who's called the Merchant of Death, Victor Boot, who was a, um, a convicted arms dealer. He's serving 25 years in Illinois prison. And so there's a deal on the table. Russia says there is no deal. Um, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is supposed to talk to Ser- Sergei Lavrov either today or or over the weekend about this deal, among other things. They haven't spoken since Russia invaded Ukraine. So there is a deal on the table to try to get both of those Americans out of Russia. Uh, Brittany Griner did plead guilty to her charges. She faces 10 years in prison, and Whalen is serving 16 years in prison. He's been in there for four years, so we'll see what happens. But there, as I said, there is a deal on the table. Boy, we covered a lot. Thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. Appreciate your time. <laughs> Thank you, Sue and Andy. Thanks for having me. Love chatting with you. Thanks so much. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington correspondent.
As protests and debate continue in the U.S. in the wake of the Roe v. Wade decision, new Ipsos polling for Global News is asking Canadians and has asked where they stand on women's access to abortion services. Joining us to break it down now is Sanyam Sethi, who is the Vice President, Public Affairs for Ipsos Public Polling. Good morning to you, Sanyam. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Morning to you, too. I appreciate you joining us to talk about this. And I'm just kind of briefly looking over your polling. We'll break down some of the numbers, but it looks off the top that Canadians are even more firm in their belief that women have the right to access abortion services. Is that what you see in the numbers? Absolutely. That's what we are seeing. And, um, you know, since the issue was flung open in the U.S., the world has been watching and Canadians are very closely debating the matter in their own country as well. Now, beyond just the banner of Canadians uh, within the polling, you broke it down uh, between women and men. Can you tell us uh, the divide and what you're seeing from each gender? Absolutely, Um, except that there isn't much of a divide when we break the data down by gender. So 56% of Canadians overall that abortion should be permitted whenever a woman decides she wants one. And we are seeing that this issue is not divisive on gender lines. Both men and women are equally supportive and pretty aligned on this opinion. Did you break it down by provinces? Was there much of a difference as you look at Canadians across the country in the various provinces and how people feel about the issue? Absolutely, we do. And again, what we're seeing is there aren't very many differences. There is, um, you know, among nearly every demographic we study, more than half do support this unconditional right to abortion or choice. We do see that British Columbia and Alberta are the most likely uh, to support uh, that a woman should have a right to choose uh, and abort whenever she decides uh, to, you know, not take a pregnancy to full term. But what's, what's really standing out here is Atlantic Canada. We see that the four provinces in Atlantic Canada are the only exception where uh, less than majority, I I would say less than half support this unconditional choice. But even in this region, 50% support abortion only with restrictions, with conditions. Uh, They feel that, you know, abortion should be allowed, but only in certain circumstances. And Atlantic provinces are the least likely to say that it should never be permitted. So Atlantic Canada is somewhere in the middle there, supporting conditional choice, while all the other provinces support unconditional choice. And beyond the regions across the nation, you also uh, you took a trip back in time and compared some of your findings to findings that were done in polling back in 2010. What did you find there? Uh, it's it's really interesting there, the overtime developments in Canada, and this, this is not a new debate, right? In 2010, around the G8 and G20 summit, this issue was, uh, you know, being widely discussed when Prime Minister Stephen Harper's maternal health plan, you know, the lack or of inadequate or adequate funding was being uh, debated there. So we, we did a similar polling around that time. And what we are seeing when we compare 2010 results to more than a decade later today in 2022, Canadians are becoming even firmer in their belief that women should have the right to access abortion services at their own choosing. This number stands at 56% right now, and it has gone up 13 points over this period. So yeah, the data clearly points to 
this increasing conviction in support of a right to choose. And, and Sanyam, this, this polling that you have done through Ipsos, this was done after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, correct? So I, I would have suspected it influenced people in their thinking and, and realizing that, you know, in the United States, they're doing something that we don't necessarily agree with then. Absolutely. And uh, we not only asked this after Roe v. Wade when Canadians have, uh, you know, had had a chance to see, uh, you know, how the issue is unfolding in, uh, in uh, the Southern Hemisphere, um, and we, we also asked them if they would be interested in reopening a debate on access to abortions within Canada. And the results very clearly tell us that Canadians are not interested in going down a similar track. Um, we, uh, we asked them, uh, you know, if we should leave things just the way they are. And 61% of Canadians agree. Sanyam, I uh, like to dig into polls and find out, you know, when we're talking about this information, which a lot of the times is very valuable, uh, can you give us some ideas of, of how it was set up, how many people took part in, at what time frame were uh, your uh, folks polled in? Absolutely. We ran this, this uh, study in um, the second week of July, uh, specifically 12th and 13th uh, July. So that was almost two weeks after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and we polled 1,001 Canadians, aged 18 plus. Fascinating. Thank you for uh, breaking it down for us. I really appreciate you joining us this morning, Sanyam. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Sanyam Sethi, Vice President, Public Affairs at Ipsos Public Affairs. And I think just, you know, it reiterates the fact that there is no need for any government in this country to ever touch this decision. This is an issue that Canadians can agree on, and there's no need to do what they're doing in the United States. Yeah, I think when this came out and there were conversations perhaps starting around the water cooler, could the same thing happen here? In my mind, I thought absolutely not. We, we can be surprised sometimes, absolutely, with the influence of, of what we see down south. We are so tied, so different, but at the same time, so tied to the yeah, U.S. Yeah, often, yep. Uh, so it's interesting to see this in 1,000 people. That's a half-decent sample size, I would think. And the people I talk with seem steadfast, and things seem to have not changed, even though the headlines have been a little wonky down in the U.S.A., and, um, you know, You're it's, not kidding. it's one of those cases. It's like they just want to go back in time sometimes in the United States. Well, and I think that there is still some very much divisiveness down there. And I think yep, that, very much. you know, people dra- drag their heels into the ground to, uh, to, to a certain extent, like to fight for fighting's sake. Not to say that we don't do that in certain sections here. And not to say that we are a perfect nation. And I point to maybe some freedom rallies that continued <laughs> in horn honking in Ottawa, for example. But in the end... Yeah, this does not come as a surprise to me whatsoever. It, it doesn't to me either, but, it, you know, I just think it's important to, to continue to do polling like this to show governments when they do come into power, whether it's new, old, whatever it might be, that this is not an issue that you touch. We have decided on it. We have moved forward. We are progressive, and let's keep going forward. There's no need to look in that rearview mirror, right? No, yeah, and, and there it is. It is 2022, and I think sometimes uh, we forget how far we've come, and maybe... Lawmakers want to put their stamp on things, not realizing what kind of an impact that could have and not realizing that there might not be an appetite for it. Maybe there's a small group. Maybe there's a, a what they call fringe. And I know that word's been used to death. Uh, but in the end, yeah, it's good to see the polling does back that up for sure. 100%.
842 now, and a couple of the CFL's top teams face off this weekend at McMahon Stadium when our Calgary Stampeders welcome the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. With details on the big game, we're joined this morning by John Huffnagel, President and General Manager of the Calgary Stampeders. Morning, Huff. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you're welcome, Sue, and good morning to you. We are pumped about the game. I know it's going to be a good one. Uh, there's been some injury. There's certainly been some illness concerns this week. What's the latest? How's the team ready to go? Yeah, um, the sun is shining. Let's put it that way. Uh, we did have a scare, you know, coming off our break. Um, but uh, everyone can uh, make the game except for Charlie Moore. Uh, but uh, Kadeem carries uh, Derek Dennis and... Uh, Thurman, they're all ready to go. It's been an interesting schedule for the Calgary Stampeders as far as those bye weeks in such close proximity. Uh, what does it mean to you, Huff, as far as the time off? Does it help or hinder, or how do you keep the players ready for this and, and limber? Well, yeah, you're right. It was unusual that we had two byes so close together. Uh, you know, but uh, Dave and the coach have done a great job of them, you know, doing what they can to make sure the players uh, stay stay in shape. Um, you know, made good made good use of the time off, and you know it, it's a big game for us. Uh, we played a game out in Winnipeg that you know we could have won, we should have won, but we didn't win. And hopefully, we can uh, correct those things that prevent us from winning out in Winnipeg. Get the job done tomorrow. What does it take, John? What is is it going to take for the team to to come out on the winning side of this one on Saturday? Well, uh, a little bit more discipline. Uh, and when I say discipline, it's not um, fighting or anything like that. It's just uh, preventing te- uh, penalties, uh, preventable penalties. Penalties are going to happen in the game, but you don't want to uh, do stupid penalties, um, unforced penalties, being offside. We were offside on defense, and uh, Mike Rose had a sack. Uh, instead of a sack, they got five yards. They went on got a field goal instead of having to punt the football. That's just one of them. Also, we, obviously, we have to catch the football better. And that's, um, that's uncommon for our receivers. Uh, we'll get over it, and I expect a great game from them. And the last thing is we've got to protect Bo better. Uh, we did not do a good job. Uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, playing in Winnipeg. Their stadium is very loud. And hopefully, uh, Winnipeg's quarterback and offensive linemen have the problem tomorrow with our fans getting into the game and being very loud. That's what I want to touch on, John, is it seems like we haven't had a home game since April. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, to get <laughs> yeah. the fans, get the seats in the seats, that's important for the fans. They want to get out there. Uh, but from your time as a coach, uh, as a player, and as a GM, can you underscore the importance of having that hometown crowd in the stands? No question. It's always been, uh, we've always had a great record in McMahon, and a lot of that has to do with the, our fans and how boisterous they can get. Uh, we feed off the momentum, and they provide that. And so hopefully we expect a good crowd. Uh, it's family day. Uh, we have a lot of events down in the Gridiron Gardens for the kids. Uh, we have a petting uh, zoo down there. We have puppies from the uh, Cochrane Humane Society. Uh, we have face paint and inflatables for the kids. Uh, it's free. It's, it opens up at 3 o'clock, uh, the first 2,000 attendees get uh, sunglasses. (laughs) So it it should be a fun day for everybody. And it could be a historic milestone day as well. With a win at home, the Stamps could become the first CFL team to win 400 games at home. What do you credit this organization with in terms of the great success it's had over the years? 
Well, uh, what you just said is news to me. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, it started probably with uh, the Wally Bono era. Uh, Wally, um, and I was fortunate to be an assistant coach when he first started as a head coach. And he laid the blueprint and uh, won a lot of games. And, uh, again, uh, it's hard to say uh, exactly why. It's just that uh, we're competitive, and uh, we played very, very well at McMahon Stadium. And we can't, can't wait to watch uh, the mm-hmm. Stamps play very, very well tomorrow night. Thank you so much for your time, John. We appreciate it. Great, guys. Thank you. Bye now. You too. Have a good weekend. It's John Huffnagel, President and General Manager of the Calgary Stampeders. Still need those tickets? Stampeders.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.